So, I don't know if it is the most depressing verse in all of Scripture, but it certainly would receive an honorable mention. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. All men, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. That's heavy. Jack Nicholas, arguably the greatest golfer ever to pick up golf clubs, last month turned 75. An interviewer asked him the question, what is it like to be getting older, to no longer be at the center of the golfing world, to see your skills diminish? And, and Nicholas went on for some time about actually how difficult this experience has been. In fact, he said uh, in the interview, all my life people have come up to me and said, I wish I could golf like you, Jack Nicholas." Well, now they can. It's gotten that bad. Um, we might say rightfully, Jack Nicholas is like grass. And all his glory is like the flowers of the field. Yes, the seven iron withers and the putter falls. You can be at the very top of your profession, but there it goes. When I was in college, Cindy Crawford was the supermodel. The whole world wondered after her beauty, and I did as well, for I had not yet met Nicole. Here is a picture now. Cindy is 48 years old. Mabel, you saw it. It's gone viral. All the news networks this week, a photograph released of her not wearing much clothing, an untouched, unchanged picture with clear evidence of aging. And some thought how courageous that this picture would go out and, and others weren't so sure. But this I think we can say, Cindy Crawford is like grass and all her glory is like the flowers of the field. The muscle tone withers and the skin falls. You can be at the very top, but after a while it will go away. Brian Williams, anchor of NBC News, at the very top of his profession, but something inside of him said, it's just not enough. In recent days, you probably know he's gotten into some trouble for making up stories that make him appear more courageous and stronger and a better reporter maybe than he really is. The social commentator David Brooks in an interview a week ago Friday said it speaks to a couple truths. The one is that no amount of public success is satisfying. You can have all the accolades in the world. Be where Brian Williams was at the tippy top. Public fame is still empty, and it still leaves you hungry. And you still want to brag a little more on the hope that you will get what you want, which is some sort of adulation that will satisfy you. 
But that never happens. That never comes. And so it just leaves you hungrier and hungrier. Brian Williams is like grass. And all his glory is like the flowers of the field. The microphone withers and the fame falls. You can be at the very top of your game, but in this life it will not last. And so it is true of all of us, isn't it? All of us are like grass, and our glory is like the flowers of the field. We wither and we fall. I had a professor in college, and I had a bit of a a love-hate relationship with this particular teacher. On the one hand, he was excellent, knew much, and uh, I think I learned a lot from him. But the hate part, he was mean. He would look down at us students in the classroom, half glasses, and he would stare down his nose. And if you made a comment or said something that he did not think warranted the air, he would let you know about it. We were terrified of him. But there was one particular comment he would make in class after class, time and time again. He would say, college students, hear this. The moment you are born... You begin to die. Oh, how depressing. College students, don't forget it. The minute you are born, you begin to die. I hated when he said that. I mean, here we were young, ambitious college students. We wanted to change the world. We wanted to develop skills and careers and move into the world and change it. For the good. What are you saying? How depressing. What do you mean? But I think this was heavy because somewhere, somehow, I knew it was true. The minute we are born in this world, we begin to die. We are like grass. We are like the flowers of the field. And we fade away. So how is it that we live in this dilemma? How is it that we are bold and courageous, that we develop our skills and abilities, that we even build careers, that we seek to go out with great optimism and make a difference in this world for the glory of God? How is it that we are filled up with that spirit while living in the reality that time is ticking? How do we navigate this difficulty? You see, I suppose uh, either saying, well, let's just forget about the reality of our own mortality. Or saying, well, let's just buck up and and get with the program. A little bit of a self-help talk. I think we know that either of these approaches just won't work. They aren't deep enough. And so for a few minutes this morning, I'd like to lay a biblical theological foundation for how it is that we can boldly go about life while keeping in mind the difficulty that we face. Stick with me for a few moments. Uh, It's going to require us to go on a bit of a journey, beginning with an understanding that those first Christians had about Jesus. You see, they came to the conclusion that God 
in Jesus Christ had revealed something of himself and of life in a way clearer than ever before. In fact, one of those first Christians would write in Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the exact representation of his being. In other words, they came to the conclusion that though God had communicated throughout world history and particularly to the Jews, all of that was analog, this digital. All of history, God had shown himself on a tube television with rabbit ears, but now, crystal clear, high definition, in Jesus, things would be understood more clearly, more accurately than ever before. So what does Jesus reveal so clearly? Among those items at the very top of the list, certainly we would include the very nature of God. In fact, I would argue this would be at the top. Now, you may know that throughout Jewish history, they were very dedicated to the idea of monotheism. One God. In opposition, in contrast to many other communities around them who were polytheistic, believing in many gods. Whether it was Egypt or Canaan, Philistia, Babylon, Greek or Rome, these cultures thought that there were many gods, many deities out there, some strong and some not so strong, some good and some evil. And often the community of all of these gods would be at war with one another. And so a human being would feel a certain amount of instability because of this crazy polytheism. The Jews said, no, monotheism, one God. And Jesus would agree. In fact, he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But then it seems that the Holy Spirit wishes to sharpen the focus a bit of how we understand this one God. And Jesus begins to reveal something, a divine community. Interesting. He begins to talk about God the Father and his relationship with this Father God. He reveals a spirit God, a spirit God who goes with him into the wilderness to be tempted. And Jesus describes a relationship there. And also Jesus begins to live, leave breadcrumbs little hints that lead us to the conviction that Jesus himself is claiming divine attributes. God reveals in Jesus afresh, in a way much clearer than ever before, God is community. God is trinity. This is who the God of heaven really is. In fact, we see that at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus baptized with witnesses all around, but these two in particular, a dove representing the Spirit, a voice from heaven representing God the Father. There they are in celebration. In fact, as the gospel narratives build, in their conclusion, we discover the punchline, triune community. 
the very last chapter of Matthew 28, we discover that we are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Mark chapter 16, the very last chapter in Mark's gospel, we discover the witnesses to the empty tomb, Mary and Mary and Salome, a witnessing community of three. In Luke chapter 24, the very last chapter of Luke, we discover Jesus walking with two other disciples, Cleopas and another, a community of three celebrating the resurrection. And most dramatically, in the Gospel of John, the magisterial farewell discourse of Jesus in John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus again and again articulating that he and his Father are one. They love one another. Jesus giving the Spirit, explaining that the Spirit will testify of Jesus. In this section, we see a rich description of the community of God. And then Jesus' final words on the earth, Acts chapter 1. Before he ascends into heaven, he says, look, the Father has control over all time, past and future. The Son's name shall be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And the Spirit, the Spirit will come on the church and into the world with power. Jesus seems to be re revealing afresh and with greater clarity this. God was community before he was creator. God was family before he was fruitful. God was mate before he was maker. God was brother before he was father. God was lover before he was laborer. Jesus is saying something comes before the book of Genesis. Genesis may be the first book in the Bible, but it is in fact not the beginning. Genesis tells the story of God as creator, but something existed for all eternity before that, God as community. Jesus says, before God poured himself boldly into the world, he was in love with God, God in community. Now, let's pivot and figure out what this means for us. In the book of Genesis, we learn that human beings are created in the very image of God. We are in a very real way God-like. And so we study God not only to know him better, but we study God in order that we might know ourselves better. And so what is it about God and ourselves? Apparently we are first community and then we are creators. To fully pivot into our reality, a story, Luke chapter 10, Jesus enters the home of Mary and Martha. We might think of this metaphorically as Jesus entering the world to talk to us about our condition. The story plays out that Martha is being productive. She is creating, she is building things, she is active in the image of God who is creator. And this is a good thing. On the other side of the room, we discover Mary. 
who is in fellowship with Jesus, that is, Mary is playing out the first reality of God, that God is community. So the two sisters, they've got it. Mary, God in community. Martha, God as creator. They are reflecting the very nature of God. But if you know the story, all is not well. Martha, her soul is broken. She's rather irritated with her sister for just sitting there talking with Jesus. In fact, uh, Christ will look at Martha and say, Martha, I noticed two things. You are worried and you are upset. All is not well in your soul. Jesus says to her, uh, Martha, Mary has chosen, interesting, the better part. The better part of what? Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part, the thing that should be considered first. It should not be taken away from her and implied in the story, Jesus is inviting Martha to join he and Mary in community. And what would that make it? Interesting, a community of three. Something that Jesus was familiar with for all eternity. You see, I think that Jesus was diagnosing a common human problem illustrated in the life of Martha. Jesus is saying to her, Martha, we must be community before we are creators. We must be family before we are fruitful. We must be mates before we are makers. We must be brothers and sisters before we are fathers and mothers. We must be lovers before we are laborers. If our principal identity, Jesus says to Martha, is what we do, trouble. That is risky business in this broken world. Before our creative acts, there must be the security of community. So last week, I was on an airplane when all of a sudden, over the intercom system, the chief flight attendant made an announcement. She said, just want you to know that there is a passenger on this plane, and she went on to describe this passenger... And because of these circumstances, I think that we should give him a round of applause. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in an airplane before where this has happened, but, you know, it could be that there's a child celebrating a birthday or a couple that is going on their honeymoon or perhaps a cheerleading troop going to the state finals or the presence of military personnel, and we would want to honor them. And on more than one occasion, I have put my own hands together and applauded this passenger who's on the plane with me. So this flight attendant is, is, is speaking and she says, uh, I, I want all of you to know that there's a passenger on this plane by the name of Rick Johnson. And on this flight, Rick is going to cross the million mile mark. He will have traveled a million miles on our airline. And if you don't think that's a big deal, she said, this is like going to the moon and back twice. So I'd like to invite all of you to put your hands together and to celebrate Rick's accomplishment. Now, there was that one passenger. You know, there's one in every crowd, like at a symphony concert, the final movement of a piece, the final note, and they're clapping before the song's even done, right? 
And so somebody is uh, beginning to clap away, and there's a couple other people that uh, join in. But after that, crickets. Nothing. And it's uncomfortable in that cabin. <laughs> and we're looking around at one another, and we know exactly what we're thinking. We're not so sure that this is a reason to give somebody a standing ovation. I mean, there's nothing wrong with traveling for a, a, a living, but is this really praiseworthy? Should we celebrate the fact that Rick has spent all this time on airplanes? Well, our verdict was no. Well, all of this got me to thinking about a film that came out about five or six years ago uh, with the title Up in the Air, starring George Clooney. And the story is about a man, and yes, he's profane and doesn't live his life according to biblical values, and the, and the movie plays some of that out. But really it's about a man who is driven completely by what he does, his work, and specifically he is consumed with racking up air miles. Just a little bit of a dialogue that his character, Ryan Bingham, has with a, another character, Natalie Keener. She says to him, okay, you got to fill me in on the miles thing. What's that all about? You're talking like about frequent flyer miles. He responds, you really want to know? I'm dying to know. I don't spend a nickel, he says, if I can help it, unless it somehow profits my mileage account. So what are you saving up for? Hawaii, south of France? Oh, it's not like that. The miles are the goal. That's it? You're just saving to save? Let's just say that I have a number in mind and I haven't hit it yet. That's a little abstract. What's the target? <laughs> I'd rather not. Is it a secret target? It's 10 million miles. Okay, isn't 10 million just a number? Pi's just a number. Well, we all need a hobby. No, I don't mean to belittle your collection. She says, I get it. It sounds cool. I'd be the seventh person to do it. More people have walked on the moon. Do they throw you a parade? You get lifetime executive status. You get to meet the chief pilot, Maynard Finch. Wow. And they put your name on the side of a plane. Well, the story plays out, and of course the tension is, is Ryan's goal really worth it? Well, towards the end of the story, he's flying on the airplane, and all of a sudden, over the intercom system, the head flight attendant makes an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that there is a special passenger on our plane. For you see today, Ryan Bingham is crossing the 10 million mile mark. Let's give him a round of applause. And unlike the negative judgment that we rendered in the film, the place goes crazy, applauding his great accomplishment. Flight attendants come and swoon over him, and then this famous pilot makes his way down the center of the plane, shakes his hand and presents him with a platinum card, giving him thorough congratulations. But as you look into the, to the face of Ryan, you get it. This is not all that he imagined it would be. It didn't fulfill him like he thought. And there's a little bit of dialogue between this great pilot and Ryan. And then the pilot asks a question. 
So where are you from? An awkward pause. And then the line of the movie. I'm from here. I'm from here. Up in the air. I have no home. I have no family. I have no community. I have no church. I have no synagogue. I have no place. I'm from up here. Gordon McDonald, in his book, The Resilient Life, speaks to Christians, to church people, about the significance of lingering, loitering, loafing, being community. He writes, maybe it's an exaggeration, but I'm going to say it anyway. Few, if any, people in my generation have ever put a premium on lingering. We have been a society of folk that have too many things to do, too many places to go, too many deals to close, too many people to please. Even our view of the Christian life seems to discourage too much lingering. There's a world to influence, we say, there's a cause to pursue. I can recall writing a wistful article, he says, on the nature of resting, which is not far from lingering, and receiving a passionate letter from a so-called Christian leader who accused me of misleading people. How can you rest? How can you linger for a single minute when there is so much left undone in our world, he said. My friends, my church family, this is a Sabbathing community. And the very definition of Sabbath is non productivity, non work. The very first experience that human beings have Sabbath. You see, church must be community. Before it is creativity. We must be family before we dare be fruitful. The risks are so high, my brothers and sisters. If we bank everything on our careers and on our skills and our talents and the quality of our bodies and what we can do for the world, if everything we are as people, as families, as a church is what we do and not first and foremost the community which we are, a community inside the Trinity, a home together, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. What might this community look like? Oh, just a little example. For about a decade, we had a dog named Roosevelt. And it didn't matter what kind of day I had. Productive, non-productive. Did a good job at work, didn't do so, so well. Preached a good sermon, a flat sermon. Did not matter what my creative, productive world was. When I would go home and step over 
that threshold, that dog would look up at me, tail wagging, and go, my hero has come home. Oh, I love Dave Barry's line. You can say anything foolish to a dog, and the dog will give you a look that says, wow, you're right, I never thought of that. <laughs> oh. What do people experience when they cross the threshold of our church, of our denomination, of Christianity? My friends, we can be bold and courageous. We ought to go out and seek to conquer the world. But we can only do so safely if we first model and experience the first part of God, the first aspect of His image, which is home. Community. The fellowship of our Father and of the Son, and of the Spirit, and the fellowship of one another. All people are like grass, and our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. That curmudgeon of a professor of mine was right. The moment we are born, we begin to die in this world. But we need not fear. We can boldly go into the world with great courage and creativity in the way of God. So long as we are together first. Home.